Hello and welcome to the Outer Twilight Podcast. I'm Andrew and I'm joined today by uh, Mike as uh, as always. You're always here. We're always here together, aren't we, Mike? We're always oh, here. Oh, <laughs> that's that's debatable by some if we're here. But... <laughs> Intellectually, it would be debatable. Physically, we're both here. Um, yeah, and so today on Season 2, Episode 8, we are doing uh, another... Uh, creative writing challenge, so to speak. And so the way this works is Mike and I are going to uh, na- now pick a prompt, uh, a writing prompt from the prompt writer that or the prompt suggester that we use. And uh, we're each going to go away for a little bit in a couple of days and work on our story ideas. And then, and, and you don't have to wait that whole time with us. We'll, we'll take care of that part. And then it just through the miracle of modern technology uh, instantaneously it will be transported to a few days later when we actually reveal our stories that that we told and so we're we're glad you're able to join us today where everything is made up and the points don't matter um, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's kind of what we're going for so uh mike do you want to explain a little bit of how we do this with the dice and everything okay so i have created a list and we've got three very broad categories we've got science fiction fantasy and romance and uh, just to make things interesting we have not landed on romance yet but uh so i'll roll a six cider and if it's a one two or three it's science fiction a four or five will be fantasy and a six will go with romance then we've got sub genres within each of those larger genres so i'll roll another die and that'll bring us to the category and then i'll go to the prompt generator and it'll well, I think, out what we need yeah and, and, well i think what we did last time was we we rolled um to randomly generate which prompts because they have numerous ones under each category so yeah so that's how it works so <clears throat> Let's do this. Let's be a little different this time because we had science fiction last time, if I remember right. Yes, we did. So why don't we be a little more daring and we'll say one to four is fantasy. That's right. It's science fiction, fantasy and romance, right? Yep. So so let's say one to four is fantasy and five or six is romance. Oh, so it's either either or no science fiction. Either or. Well, because I don't, you know, sci-fi twice in a row is not as fun. Yeah. Although with the sci-fi, we've got almost... 35 categories okay so let's see so 20 cider fantasy Ooh, we rolled a 20 which is young critical hit <laughs> yeah, young adult <laughs> so let's see what that okay oh. um sort by genre okay fantasy young adult so monosyllabic dialogue uh <laughs> I'm kidding. That's not not very nice. I am joking. I think young adults are great. I just, yeah. I feel like YA fiction kind of talks down to whoever the audience is supposed to be. Well, there certainly is that tendency if it's done poorly. Um, Yeah. Okay. So here's their definition of young adult. These character driven stories focus on teenagers who interact with magical elements and experience dramatic personal growth over the course of the plot. There's an emphasis on interpersonal relationships, including romantic turmoil, tested friendships, and family issues. Okay, so I'm going and whoa! So there's 56 different prompts that we could go with for. Uh, Woohoo! So why don't you pick a number between one and 56? 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, let's go with um, 48. 48. Okay. And pick- we'll go with my age. Oh, okay. Okay. So we'll go with your chronolo- chronological age, 48, and we'll go with your maturity age of 12. Okay. <laughs> Wow, that's that's actually generous. I'm honored. <laughs> I I feel like I hit double digits somewhere. That, that's pretty impressive, actually, maturity-wise. You are a teenage boy living with your divorced mother in a suburban neighborhood. Every summer, your father takes you on a cross-country trip in his RV, visiting whichever tourist trap he decides to drag you to this time. But this summer, your dad has a different plan. He tells you that his work is carried over into the summer, so you'll be traveling up to Maine for a while. He even has a job for you. You agree to go with him. You're not particularly excited about working, but you have to admit that you're intrigued. When you get there, you find out what your father's really been doing all these years, hunting demons and banishing them back to their own realm. Okay, here's the other prompt. When your father lost his job, life went from bad to worse as he struggled to make ends meet. You had no choice but to quickly learn to look after yourself as you looked to the streets in search of food. Took to the streets. One cold evening, after a long day of scavenging, you return to the apartment to find it boarded up, an eviction notice nailed to the door. You knock on the door, trying to convince yourself that your father wouldn't leave without you, but deep down you know he has. You walk around to the back of the apartment, climb up onto the hot water system, and push open the toilet window, knowing the latch is broken. There's no sign of your father, though. His wardrobe is open, and several hangers are bare. You turn to your own bedroom and gather the warmest things you can into a backpack. You layer on the clothes, but as you leave, you go to the closed door that once was your mother's study. You were never allowed in here before, but now there is no one to stop you. You open the door. It takes you a moment to overcome the mustiness before you turn the light on and step inside. There's not a lot to see, just a desk with a computer and several mismatched bookshelves, all coated in thick dust. You walk over to the desk, where you see a book of matches on top of a notepad with something written on it. Wiping away the dust, you find your name. You frown as you pick up the book ma- the book matches and open it, seeing only one has been used. You slip the book in your pocket, certain the matches will come in handy in the cold. You climb back out of the window and walk around to the front of the house, wondering what you will do next. Your stomach growls, and you wish you had something to eat. To distract yourself, you pull the matches out and strike one, letting it burn down close to your gloved fingers before blowing it up. As soon as you do, a hot dog vendor appears before you. Are you hungry? he asks. I want to get home before the snow gets too heavy, and it would be a shame to waste these. He holds out four piping hot hot dogs. Eyes wise, you stare at the book of matches before accepting the vendor's offer. I guess I'll take the matches one. Do you want the other one? No. No, if it, if okay. it was getting ideas in you, and um, go for it. So I've got magical matches, and you've got demon hunter, right? Demon Hunter in Maine. Although I'm just saying right out, I may change the demon to something else. Oh yeah, please do. Um, I have I have a notion as to demon demon hunting seems a little over, especially in young adult. That sort of theme seems kind of overdone. Yeah. Anyway, okay. So all right. So we will pick. What <laughs> we will start to think on our ideas, and then we'll come back in a couple of days, instantaneous to you, dear listener, and. Uh, and uh, we will reveal our results. Yeah. And so then we'll each kind of pitch kind of what we thought. We'll discuss one another's pitches. And um, I don't know that we're not going to necessarily pick a winner, but um, 
enjoy the process. And we are back. Uh, it's been a couple days since we got our writing prompt, and now we are ready to rock and roll, as it were. I actually, we've done this a few times now, and this one, it's probably the first one where I feel like I have a good, solid idea. And now that I've upsold it, um, I'll explain what it is. <laughs> okay. You say you've got a really good idea. Is it the kind that where you're like, hmm, maybe I'll write this? Yeah. Or is it just you have a good idea? It's the first one where I've been like, this would actually make a decent book, I think. Um, and I mean, hmm. obviously, we're talking rough draft in terms of some of the details. But so mine was yeah. essentially after going on regular trips with my family, uh, on like on vacations with my family, my dad takes me on a trip to Maine was the original prompt. Um, and it turns out that he's a demon hunter. And he's sort of getting me into the family business, so to speak. So, okay. so what'd you do with it? So I kind of feel like that the demon hunter thing's been kind of done to death. Um, and I decided to go a bit of a different route with it, um, changing the location from Maine to Massachusetts and then doing uh, cryptids rather than demons. So cryptids are like things like Bigfoot or uh, the Jersey devil is another one or the Mothman. Um, they're, they're kind of in American foot there. There seem to be a uniquely American thing um, that are, they're basically creatures that are mythological ish. Yeah. They more have that kind of American folklore. Yeah. Version and they, of the, and they the haven't, they haven't ever really been proven to exist. And so they're cryptids in the sense like occasionally remains will be found, for example, and people will be like, we don't know what they are. Um, and they have their roots yeah, but, in but like, they haven't, <laughs> they haven't been proven to not exist. Though. No, exactly. And they kind of, I think have their roots a lot, at least in the modern mythology. I think they have their roots in like the PT Barnum sort of uh, freaks exhibits and stuff that mm -hmm. he would have traveling around with the circus where these kind of weird creatures there's things that are you know like in, in southern united states and into mexico mexico has some cryptid type animals as well so there's like chupacabra and uh things like that quetzalcoatls uh although that roots back in mythology so my idea was to do it that so the origin of these cryptids is that they actually are abominations and that, and it, actually this is true. Nobody really knows what sparked or started the Salem witch trials. And so I was had the idea of like that cryptids were more populous back in the 1600s. And because they were dangerous, they tended to be aggressive. Um, they were hunted and the people that were protecting them are the people that got mislabeled as witches. Uh, and so what eventually happened mm. is, is that, so basically because cryptids are wild animals and they're dangerous, they were very hard to protect. Uh, and so the people who protected them were, would sort of take a cryptid each. And then as Western expansion happened in the United States, cryptids are also fairly territorial at themselves as animals. And so their protectors migrated West and so there are now cryptids all over the United States that are protected by an individual, which is why we don't see them because they're, they're dangerous animals. They're protected. And the human protectors are very devoted to their 
they're cryptids. The cryptids do reproduce, um, you know, and so, th- you know, some of the mythology of the story and the backstory could be that occasionally, you know, cryptid protectors will bring their animals together so that they can grow they have the next generation and things like that. Um, and so the father, the family vacations are what it said actually in the prompt is that they would go to things like the biggest ball of twine in Minnesota, or they'd find, you know, sort of these attractions, you know, the big boot restaurant. So what I thought would be kind of cool right. is actually as they emigrated West and established sort of a you know a living situation there what also happened though is in certain areas where it was kind of remote getting human prey which is what cryptids prefer was much more difficult and so these tourist traps were are actually literally tourist traps that they will sort of once a season or a couple times a season they will you know use these visitors to the you know the biggest ball of twine they will pick some out that seem to be kind of either a complete family that's a little harder that if they disappeared it would be strange but also there wouldn't be a lot of people looking for them that kind of thing um so i mean kind of dark but that that's where we're going with it in the sense that they would basically over the course of the summer travel season they would obtain the food that they would need for their cryptid for the day for the year right so that they could piece piece these people out over the course of the year so the family vacations that the dad and his son took every year are were and and that they took as a family was actually hunting cryptids and their protectors at these locations because that's what they were doing the family would go to these you know uh types of tourist trap kind of places and what they would do is that they would find a motel to be at and then the father at night would slip out and go and take out the cryptid and the cryptid protector and then would slip back in by morning, you know, mom would do the driving the next day and that, you know, that kind of thing, yada, yada, yada. And so those family trips were actually sort of work trips for dad. And so then dad mm-hmm. is revealing that this is what he does. And I would sort of, I would structure it so that I would probably do a double narrative where some of it is the history. So each chapter, you know, first chapter would be kind of the very origin. And then the main, the the second chapter would be the father and the dad traveling. And the dad basically in is telling those historical chapters to the kid as they drive across the country. And so then he, the reason they're going to Massachusetts is because there were some in Salem that knew about the cryptids and knew how dangerous they were. And so at the same time that the quote unquote witches were harboring and protecting and pulling cryptids away, there was a group of hunters that developed as well as a secret society because their fear was that in hunting the cryptids and doing what they were doing, they would also be labeled as witches because there there was so much panic at the time that it, you know, sort of who was what wasn't really considered. Um, And so they were afraid that they would be discovered as, as hunters, but labeled as witches and so they basically founded a secret society. You know, America's known for its secret societies and things like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, so basically dad is taking the son to Salem to consecrate him as a, as a hunter. 
And so he's, he's, this is a, a journey that, you know, the generations go on where they travel to Salem. They recount the stories of how it all started and recount some of the hunts that the father has been on. And then that is passed on to the, the mantle is passed on to the son with that sort of the final test being that the son has to fight the first cryptid sort of under protected slash uh, trial circumstances in, in Salem that he has to face off sort of against a, a prey that isn't easy, but also isn't something that's as dangerous. And then he becomes the primary hunter and the father then sort of guides and mentors him until his passing. So okay. that's my pitch. Okay. okay. So I have some thoughts. Yeah. I definitely have some thoughts on here and, and this is probably more the, the, the literary person in me uh, rather than <laughs> the creative person. <laughs> in me. So I can see the series kind of forming here and with each book being uh, a new, you know, kind of creature of the week kind of thing, new episode. Mm-hmm. But what if, okay. And, and this is my contrary nature. So like you mentioned, like the, the, the witches being protectors, you know, and, the father passing on to the son, you know, as the hunters. And I was thinking, okay, well, what if there was something about women that made them protectors for these cryptids and the men mm. were the hunters and this is young adult. So it makes me wonder mm-hmm. then. Oh, that's right. That yeah. Yeah. The protector <laughs> is going to be, you know, a young girl who's learning from her mother. And so then you got Ooh. the young man Sort of a Romeo and, and Juliet of, element, kind of Romeo Juliet, but we find out that the hunt that the cryptids had changed over time, and the hunters were never interested in finding that out, and that over time, not all of them feast on humans anymore. Kind of like like I, I was thinking like Salem's Lot, where you know oh, they they use cow blood instead of human blood, right, and, yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. That and then so then he. But, you know, so he's got this family pressure and maybe like, you know, the, the council of hunters or something like that, assuming there's like more hunters yeah. out there. And, but, you know, but as he gets to know her, maybe he doesn't even know, I like, guess he's trying to get information. He meets her, but doesn't realize that she's a witch protector kind of thing. And, well, and you could you even know, bring, you could bring in elements, sort of generational differences where there's groups that want to like hunters that want to maintain the traditional values of their organization. And there is starting to be a movement of a more, more like cataloging, more becoming watchers as opposed to protect, as opposed to hunters, because there are some that are having, you know, they've had encounters where it felt almost like this was too easy in the sense that they didn't fight back or there wasn't, you know, some of that. So yeah, there could be some interesting elements in there where you have like i think too young adult like with a series you you'd kind of need not necessarily a big bad but a unifying principle that would sort of that we're working towards right um and that's the part i didn't quite get to but i, I would like say the, sort of, the big yeah. bad might be tradition and history yeah and yep. you know the way things are the institution of what's been going on and, but it's, it's so intertwined with misunderstandings and misinterpretations and just a lack of dialogue that now that we have this Romeo and Juliet scenario that starts to create that dialogue. Um, Cause I'm like, you were talking about like this, like, I really like that the framing where the dad's telling the stories as they're 
heading out there. Um, but I almost see like a parallel story from, from the female perspective of their history that like, they've been misunderstood this whole time. And that, you know, that might change some of the history or it might be even be more recent type of thing. Or like, you know, there's been, there's like almost a, the hunters represent, you know, the ancient Catholic church, very stuck in their dogma. And the protectors are kind of like post-reformation that we realize, okay, you know, we, we had this way of doing things, but then we realized there was a better way and a better interpretation of what's going on. And, you know, not to get too religious about this and don't dig too deep because it falls apart quickly. But um, just kind of like that that institution versus that the change. And you, know. and you could even kind of flip it on its head where the witches, quote unquote, were actually the more scientifically sort of like in terms of zoology and like they were actually cryptids weren't something that were mystical. They were something to be studied, something that they found fascinating and interesting. And so the the conflict is actually sort of the puritanical uh, mystical perspective of a fanatical version of religion and panic versus people who are actually trying to help the cryptids in earnest, not because they're evil and there's a mutuality there, but because they're wild creatures and they see, you know, they see things that other, the hunters won't bother to see kind of carrying through that, mm-hmm. that idea of like, you know, their families. I mean, I suppose there's a little bit of like how to train your dragon in there sort of, um, you know, where if you take the time and you bother, you could actually figure out their habits and figure out, you know, some of the conflict is that, you know, it's other cryptids who are living in too close proximity. And so people get caught in the middle or, you know, it's uh, like in modern days, you get wolves that encroach on somebody's cattle. Right. And so, yeah. you, you know, and so relocation wouldn't have been an idea back then, but you know, you, uh, yeah. So, and then I could see how you could almost like, I don't know if it would be the I like the idea of sort of the parallel view of the the mom and and daughter protectors and having it gender split like that and then I'm trying to think though like if it was a series would you bookend it so you'd have the one that's kind of the less revealing of the overall story and then have the mother daughter one kind of at the end or would you do the mother daughter one second or have a book kind of in the middle in like a one and then two is more just the guy's journey. And then the third one is kind of a reveal of the larger picture. And then I don't know. Well, I think you, you would really have to dig into, into the characters themselves. And as, as you get through that, understand more what the history is. Cause I think that'll tell you kind of the journey that you need to go on. Right. Because like when I look at it, like it could start where like the cryptids were, you know, quote unquote, evil aberrations. And, you know, the witches were, um, they were misunderstood by society, but they weren't necessarily, they weren't necessarily altruistic to start. Right. But as they had to take on this role of protection um, of their creations, you know, maybe the Mm -hmm. witches were legit and, you know, they created these things, but as they protected them, that, that almost that maternalism, you know, and they started to see actually the, the witches regained over generations, regained their humanity from watching the cryptids, you know, you know, mate and create families and stuff like that. And that they re- started to realize that, hey, there's a lot more um, quote unquote humanity there. 
than they originally thought. And that changed them over time to the point now where, you know, they're making that change, but the hunters have never. Well, where the perceived good has essentially become evil and the perceived evil has become essentially good over like the two sides have sort of flipped over time. I do like that. That's kind of a cool progression. Um, Yeah. And it, you know, the, I would really want to stay away from like chosen one kind of mentality. Uh, I'd want to make it, I'd want to think, make it a little more natural in the sense of like, you know, that when they meet, they, you know, they both experience something in each other. They weren't expecting, you know, they've been told, you know, throughout this journey, they've been told that they're the other side is evil and wrong. And then they come up against each other and go, Oh, you're like almost like a perfect storm, right? He happens to go after this cryptid, this protector, and she isn't necessarily expecting him. But when they run into each other, it's like, you know, and I mean, you know, being an adult, it could be based on, you know, initially physical attraction. Um, well, the, the summer fling, you know, because you're yeah, doing yeah, the summer exactly. vacation type of thing. and Yeah, exactly. And, and doing it that way could. Yeah. So anyway, so that's my pitch. Oh, I, yeah, I think, that, well, obviously there's, there's fertile ground there. there. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So mine was boiled down to magical matches. Um, <laughs> and so where, yeah, where he strikes a match that he got from, you know, his mother's study, his dad disappeared and um, his wish is seemingly granted. So I, I did some thinking with this and you know, kind of just kept thinking, thinking, thinking. So what I kind of decided on was, um, okay, so our main character, even as a name, uh, Matt, Matthew. So Matthew Lee, 16-year-old, living with his father. Um, his mother had been his primary caretaker most of his life. The father was kind of always around. But she was killed like two years ago. And since then, Matthew and his father have been struggling to make ends meet. They're always changing places that they live. But, you know, um, in his background, like, no, okay, part, part of where I'm struggling with this is I want to tell it as it would be presented in the story. Mm-hmm. But the background is really information is really important into knowing this. Right. So what I kind of so what I kind of decided on here was that the mom was always kind of almost like the provider, and the dad was kind of the protector. Mm-hmm. They always kind of struggled, kind of flighty, and whenever things started getting kind of iffy, then oh well, mom would be at an antique store and find an amazing find that you know for really cheap that they could sell and make a whole bunch of money off, or um, they would find a whole bunch of money in the park or mm. they would, um, you know, something really lucky, something really amazing would happen for them. And then when she died, things got really bad. The father became very withdrawn, bitter, angry, distant to the son, but he was always trying to keep the son safe. So whatever he could get would go to the son, mm. but they struggled, they struggled. Uh, until the son got really, really ill and in kind of his, you know, fever delirium, he just has these vague recollections of his dad just being really worried and muttering and 
talking about his wife and the promises that he made. And then he kind of blacks out. And the next thing he knows, he wakes up the next morning and he's feeling better than he's ever felt before. Mm -hmm. He's just great. And the father is just looks really tired and kind of resigned and defeated. Okay. But saying, okay, we need to leave. And he says, you know, the apartment building just down the block burnt down last night. And, you know, but you were, you know, when the fever broke, you were, weren't aware of it. And there's, you know, we need, we need to go. And so they go across town and in the days that go, they're like struggling to find food. They take what little bit of stuff that they have. And the father's just getting more and more withdrawn until we get to where the prompt starts and the father doesn't come back and he disappears Mm. and been a couple days and Matthew's getting worried. And so he realized, okay, he's been trained his whole life that when things get really bad, you bolt. And so he grabs mm-hmm. stuff and, and he goes and going through stuff. So not his mom's study, but, and he finds this box of matches with, you know, this carvings on it and kind of like almost like runic symbols. And he remembers seeing his mom with that from time to time, mm. but it was always hidden. And so, he takes that kind of as like a memento of his mom and then he, he goes and he's in an alley and it's cold and things. And there might've even been, you know, got the sense that somebody was following him and then came with a prompt where, you know, he's really cold and, he, but he gets, you know, a bunch of waste, you know, kind of like in the, in the garbage can in the alley and lights it up and, you know, oh, I really wish I had something to eat. Mm-hmm. And then, few moments later he hears a bell behind him turns and there's a hot dog vendor offering it. okay here you know and this kind of weird you know, here's all this leftover food that i have and you know it's going to go to waste so here why don't you have it and and it's like oh kind of like my wishes were granted so what this story will be is that these magical box of matches is that he'll discover that when you burn something with it it creates an energy that grants wishes that are relative in the magical sense to um, how much energy is being burned. Mm. And so the mystery will be is that what he'll find out through different things going on. And I obviously haven't worked out those things is that when his mom and dad first got together, um, they couldn't have a child and she wanted a child more than anything. And she was given this box of magic things and she had to burn something really, really immense to grant her wish of a child. And he was the product of that. And then they were running from the consequences of what she did to create that wish. And so they're always protecting and protecting him. And then when things would get bad, then she'd use another match to help things out and, um, and then when she died, it was finally the consequences of his creation that caught up to them. Mm-hmm. And so then the father had made, had to make the, the pledge that he would protect Matthew at all costs. And so when Matthew finally got sick, then dad had to use a match. He burnt down the apartment building mm. to create enough magic to heal him. But then the consequence to that and probably, and I'm thinking probably more supernatural 
consequence as opposed to, you know, law and authority consequence, um, causes his dad to disappear. And so then Matthew will be having to try to track down his dad, figure out all these mysteries and figuring out the connection between the magic of the matches and the fire and granting wishes and then having to balance that between what his parents had learned is the balancing between I can have anything that I want when I make a wish, but there's always a consequence to it. And you know what the, the balance is to that. Well, magic having consequences is kind of a good rule. Otherwise, you know, it really kind of destroys the narrative of a, a story. If you can just do anything you want, the only, I think that's really awesome. The only uh, thought I might add to it or the idea that I might have to it is that would be kind of interesting is that as he searches for a way to possibly reconnect with his parents, or if he tries, as he tries to figure things out is that consequences don't have to be bad. So if you're sacrificial with the matches, so if you do something on behalf of someone else, right? So, you know, for example, he finds a bunch of, you know, guys gathered around, a. Uh, a barrel, a burning barrel, right? And they're freezing. And so he uses, you know, they're all like, does anybody have a match? And he's the only one there that, hap- you know, he happens to be going by and, you know, he lights a match. And then something positive happens to him, right? Like he gets like a clue or whatever. So that the consequence can actually move. He starts realizing the consequence can move in another direction. It doesn't. And I think what's good about that is because from a story perspective, I think we, we tend to lean towards like the negative consequence idea and Mm -hmm. the idea of positive consequence. Like if you, you know, and maybe even discovering that's what the matches were actually for is that they're actually for helping others. They're not for self-benefit. If there's self-benefit, then it's tragic. If there's, if you use it towards others and you are sacrificing with them, then you receive something positive out of it i don't know if that makes sense but yeah well i even think of like i think of the i don't know if it was outer limits or twilight zone but the one where the woman she can make a wish type of thing and her husband had died Mm -hmm. and so since she wishes that you know could have him back like right before he died Mm -hmm. or right before the the car crashed and then only realized that he died of a heart attack before the car crashed, so she gets him back, but he's dead because right. he had the heart attack. And that it always makes me think about, you know, being very specific about what your wishes are, what what it is that you desire, that you want, and the, the consequences from, you know, messy wishing, <laughs> which kind of works into the, you know, what you're saying about, you know, that, that positive negative consequence or, um, or even the results of, um, the types of wishes or, or kind of the intent that's behind it or the sacrificial nature of it. That would be such certainly something to explore. And that could be something that would, uh, you know, fan the flames of that idea into a, into a full theme of, um, of looking at, you know, the nature of intent and, um, sacrificial versus, um, you know, selfish, kind of desires and what comes from that storytelling and story writing is a lot of work. Like, I mean, I I think what's really funny when we do these, I guess is like, especially this one is I feel like I have a really good idea getting it all down, (laughs) like actually Uh developing it into a book or a series of books is like 
terrifying. Like, it, you know, just the, the, it feels like an Everest of sorts, but it doesn't mean that it won't be attempted. It just means that it's very daunting to kind of approach. I honestly don't know in certain respects how some authors make it look easy, like to do series, you know, I'm sure it isn't, but you know, the fact that in a fairly quick turnaround, like Brandon Sanderson, the guy can crank out stories really quickly. Yeah, but there's a lot of rumors that he might be actual robot. So um, <laughs> it's an AI generating. Well, well that, I mean, that being yeah. said, he also is an insomniac, so he doesn't sleep much, mm. and so he he's. But he's also trained himself. He's never wanted to be anything but a writer, and so it's kind of been his focus his entire yeah. certainly his entire adult life I mean, to yeah. to do that. So he's developed those skills, and I think that's part of what we're doing is like it's one thing to be creative it's uh, to know things but if you don't use those muscles if you don't use those skills they're not going to get better yeah and true. you know the more you do it the more that you practice it the easier it comes you know be able to see connections to build on ideas to be able to even recognize what's a good idea versus what's maybe not a good idea right. as you kind of flesh it out and how you do that and there's certain tips and tricks that come along with it but bottom line is, is you, ha- you have to put in the time and you have to put in the work yeah. to do it. And that it's, it's daunting because you can put in, like you can put in a lot of work digging a ditch and know that when you're done, you're going to have a ditch that yeah. is going to do what a ditch needs to do. You can put a lot of time into writing a story and it's just not working. Well, I, I, I like the idea of fruit because in my mind, uh, you know, the work is planting the tree, nurturing it, doing everything you can, and you still might just not have a season that bears fruit, right? Um, so right. I kind of like that image a little bit more uh, in that regards. But uh, yeah, no, I was good. And that was fun this time. So, but it looks like it's about time for us to wrap up. So that's awesome. Thanks, Mike. And uh, for those of you who are listening, feel free to like, subscribe, and comment as you see fit. And tell your friends, tell a whole bunch, you just had the outer twilight for audio lunch. And, and I'm... <laughs> was that overwrought? Did, was, that, was I trying too hard there? I... Uh, <laughs> anyway, I... <laughs> uh, thanks, everybody. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. <laughs> Take thanks, care. Mike. <laughs>